Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Dick Westheimer. Dick has, with his wife and writing companion Debbie, lived on their plot of land in rural southwest Ohio for over 40 years. His first collection, A Sword in Both Hands, Poems Responding to Russia's War on Ukraine, recently published by Sheila Nagig, is described by award-winning poet and first-generation Ukrainian-American Julia kolchinsky Despak as an, as an achievement of profound empathy, at once ambitious in scope and willing to pause with the particular. He is a 2021 Rattle Poetry Prize finalist, and his most recent poems have appeared or are upcoming in Rattle, Patterson Review, Whale Road Review, Minion, Gyroscope Review, and Cutthroat. More can be found and ordering information for the chapbook at dickwestheimer.com. And Dick, thank you so very much for joining us. Oh, Jeremy, I'm so happy to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Of course. Uh, could you please start us with a poem? Uh, sure. Um, and as I was sharing with you, I always like to read a most recent poem whenever I get a chance. And this one is responding to my new telescope that I got for my 70th birthday. The word for darkness is light. I went out tonight under the lantern hung stars, took a bucket to collect the light poured from the quantum hearts and drank until I was tipsy, bewitched by their hymns, greedy for more of their secrets, which I promised to keep. But how can I not tell all who will listen the news? From here I can see the dark between the stars, and it contains more stars. Awesome. Awesome. You, you're, you're such an observant person. Like, I, I, you, in your hobbies, I think, exhibit that, and I... I I'm interested. So, so tell me about your interest in space. I'd like to hear a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. Um, first of all, you know, I'm a child of the late '50s and early '60s, so I grew up with the, you know, NASA's early program, and you know, being a kid, glued. There used to be this thing called television that everybody watched the same thing when it happened, <laughs> and you know, being glued to the TV as John Glenn, you know, circled the Earth. Uh, three times. And I just was sort of naturally interested in that. Then I had a remarkable teacher in high school, uh, astronomy teacher in high school, who um, um, would come pick me up late at night and some other kids, and we'd go out under the stars and observe uh, special events that he was uh, connected to through actually NASA, as a matter of fact, uh, certain observations. And I just loved being out there in the cold air and sort of gazing up at, you know, going out into the countryside and gazing up. And I had my own little telescope that he helped me build. And um, a couple of maybe over the winter, I got out that old telescope and just started obsessing about it again and ended up saying, I know what I'm going to get for my 70th birthday. It's going to be a telescope <laughs> that is fit for my older eyes and is upgraded technologically. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So let's uh, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you. Um, what's your earliest memory mm -hmm. of poetry? When did it first grab you? Well, th those are two different things. Um, my connection with poetry, and which is what I prefer to talk about, sort of solidified um, in late 2016. I hadn't really been a student of poetry. I, I had written a few poems. I'd written a number of songs. I'm a, a singer-songwriter of zero repute, uh, <laughs> just, but just enjoy it. And um, But those aren't poems. And I just was compelled to writing poems after the 2016 election season, which was sort of the ultimate debasement of language occurred, you know, during that time. It's and for some reason was sort of drawn to writing poems. And I did, and I sent them to a friend of mine who said, these are fine. Have you ever considered taking a class? <laughs> um, he said it a little nicer than that. He pointed <laughs> out he pointed out a couple of the poems that contained some elements of poetry in them. 
Mm-hmm. And so in 2017, I started in class with Pauletta Hansel um, and just became obsessed. And every time she'd introduce a new poet, I'd go out and buy a book from that poet. And I just sort of, sort of be, became habituated to the world of, of poetry and poetics, uh, which is not to say I hadn't read any poets before then. I had read some Wendell Berry. I had a few other poems. I had a Joy Harjo poem, a book of poems on my shelf, uh, but not really anything else until we'll call it 2017. Okay. All right. That's, that, that's, that's really fascinating. So like, were you always an avid reader then, or, you know, was it, was poetry, were you looking for the, the expression or were you trying to, or is this an extension of a literary interest that you've always had or both? Um, neither. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> uh, it's not that I, I didn't have a literary interest. You know, I, I read books, but I was, I'm not a, was not a habitual reader. Mm-hmm. Um, when I would run, I would listen to audiobooks sometimes, but I wasn't sort of, uh, didn't have a deep literary, um, w- with the exception of Shakespeare. I've been very involved with a local theater company, Cincinnati Shakespeare Company, for about 25 years now. Um, but that was really my only literary sort of constant. Um, and I didn't, I didn't like go, I have a need to express myself. I just was attracted to the practice of poetry. I have no idea why. I mean, I have no idea what the impulse was, except it seemed like it matched what I was feeling at the time. Yeah, that's fascinating. All right. So once a month, you sit down and you write haiku. How did that how did that practice start? Um, started in the pandemic. Uh, there's a local haiku group that met at the Mercantile Library, but that's downtown and it's a long drive. So I wasn't going in there every day and they put it online. And so since uh, they started doing Zoom haiku, I um, um, joined that group and started becoming interested in haiku and did some studying of that also. And great haiku writer, Michael Dylan Welch, um, joined the group and I got exposed to his work. Um, and so that, that Thursday once a month, um, is just a day dedicated to haiku writing because right in the middle of the day is that zoom haiku, Peregrine haiku society, they, they call it. And anybody can join. Ooh, <laughs> I'm gonna... We should say we should share the link with this episode so people can sign up for it. Um, okay. How do you like what what do you go to haiku for versus just you know regular writing? What do you use it for? Um. You know, hi, haiku, and 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 I should clarify by saying haiku is not what you might have been taught in elementary school. This you know seventeen syllable. Um, all you have to do is figure out how to fit it into three lines. It's a, you know, it's, it's a practice like poetry. It has nothing to do. It's not a syllabic form, although we were taught it was uh, in Japanese that doesn't have the equivalent of, of syllables. Um, But the haiku is almost the ultimate, I won't call it a metaphor machine, but it connects two things that are ultimately alike and different, which is similar to what a metaphor does. And unlike the cutting word. Yeah. And the, and the cutting line. Um, And unlike poetry, which sort of flows from the actual writing of it, um, haiku requires some sort of meditative reflection. Uh, Yeah. And so I go to it just to, just for the practice um, not really for the production of haiku. Okay, occasionally a good haiku will come from it, but it's mostly for the practice of just sitting, observing, thinking about what one thing I want to connect to something else. And I'm, I'm pretty obedient to the notion that it should be some sort of observation in nature. Although, you know, 
American haiku often strays from that. Um, but I, that's something I want to do. And sometimes I'll just sit here and look out my window and just sort of th think about and observe what's happening out there. And then the practice is to try to connect that with something else. So I go to it as a practice similar to, you know, a religious person might go to prayer. That's interesting. So you're, you're opening yourself up to the experience. Yeah, it's just giving, giving, giving that particular practice some time, making sure. And and I'm really uh, grateful to the people at, <clears throat> who organized the Peregrine Haiku Society for giving me a monthly appointment with that practice. How how do you know, like when you when you're writing it, you're like, yes, this is this is what I need because, and I'm asking this. I'm terrible at haiku and short form. I've, I've been recently trying to work on it because I know I'm bad at it. Is there like uh, an aha moment that you're seeking or do you just kind of, I don't know, like how, do, how does that feel? Um, I, I don't mean to be evasive, but I'm not sure. You know, occasionally a haiku will... Um, I'll, you know, I'll write one, you know, say I'll write four or five in, in the hour that we're working together. And if one of them is like, oh, you know, like that's a, that, that's a connection that's surprising to me. Um, And just feels like a breath, feels like it comes in one breath. Then it, then I'll claim it as a haiku as opposed to an attempt at a haiku. Hmm. Okay. Two beats in one breath. I like it. Um, cool. Uh, so you've mentioned before that you abandon yourself to the writing process and you're, and you're always surprised by the outcome. And, and it's not just the writing process because you have the poem, the miracle of naming. And you mentioned in your blog that it was the research phase that grabbed you um, you know, so you learned that dandelions were 30 million years old, which I learned through your learning it. I thought it was, I thought it was neat. So I was wondering if you could, you might talk about that abandon and how your relationship with writing may have shifted when you became consciously aware of this phenomenon. Um, well, very early on in, in Pauletta's class, um, I became aware that for me, if I knew what a poem was about when I started writing it, it wasn't going to turn out to be a good poem. If I if I knew how it was going to end, um, that the only thing that worked for me is if I was writing towards the opportunity for surprise, for epiphany um, in, in the poem. Uh, and so if I started a poem and, you know, I wrote I wrote down a few lines and I went, oh, I know where this is going it was always a kludge. It was always something that, you know, felt like it was pieced together out of, you know, uh, things that probably shouldn't be pieced together uh, <laughs> in order to get to an end. And I won't say that that's never worked for me, but I would say, you know, 95% uh, of the time that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I, I can't even think of a poem where I knew where it was going to go. So that was a poem where um, I read the story, I talked to my daughter, who is in that same LGBTQ community, although and knew peripherally um, um, uh, Fern, and um, and that was of course news in their community, and sort of asked how it was. A, you know, part of the research was just listening to how it affected her emotionally. Um, and then I, you know, I read all the news articles, which were all local news. None of them had made national news. So I had to sort of search through the internet and try to understand her life. <clears throat> um, so that was one bit of research was just reading and reading and reading before I started writing anything. Um, and the other is, you know, you asked about the dandelion question. I came to the dandelion because while I was thinking about the poem, I was out running um, and it was dandelion season and I was coming down the driveway and there were dandelions like growing through the gravel driveway, which had been run over by, you know, cars going in and out. 
and it just got me thinking about the uh, just con the connection you know it, it's again it's similar to the haiku practices this i knew was a connection but I'm not going to write about dandelions unless I know something about dandelions in case in case what I write, somebody reads it and goes, no, 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 that's not the facts. So I just came in and started reading about dandelions and helping to better understand them. And perhaps if I was going to make a connection between them and Fern Feather's experience or the experience of other folks in, in their situation, um, um, that it just helped me better understand. It allowed me to write to abandon it. Like I didn't sit there and read and then sort of transcribe as I was reading. I just read. And then later on that evening, uh, finished drafting the poem. Um, and the epiphany came um, in that conversation that's noted at the end of the poem. Yeah. Where, you know, here I am calling calling up my um, daughter and her partners, uh, you know, sort of talking to them because it's Shabbat and we're just, you know, we check in every Friday night and they're cooking brisket and I'm a vegetarian, but I really want to know about how they cook their brisket. And it, that felt to me like sort of a metaphor of the experience of being um um, you know, you know, truly connected to the experience of people who's in this case, their, um, um, uh, you know, their, their, their sexual identities are much different than mine. It's not, it, it, it's as important to me as knowing how you cook, you know, it's, it's just part of the deal. And that's what came up in that poem for me is, which I didn't know until I wrote those last lines. Wow. Okay. That that's such an admirable mix of fastidiousness and emotion, like empathy. It's, so where's that dividing line for you? Have you ever been kind of caught between the research of something and like you know I I, I read this thing I kind of want to include it in the poem versus what the poem wants? Oh sure, um, I'll give you an example of that. Um, I shared with you a poem. You know, I do sciencey poems too, and I I wrote a poem called "I Like Muons," and of course, before I wrote the poem, I had no idea what muons were, <laughs> and so they were in the news, and I was it was a poets respond poem for Rattle, and I just read up on on muons and read the, um, which of course gave me get a tiny bit of understanding because <laughs> you know it, it's quantum physics. Uh, which I'm not a quantum physicist. And the first draft of the poem was just dead. It was literally, it, I, I couldn't even get through it. It was just, I just was describing, describing muons and like what their history was and stuff like that in it. And um, and I know this because actually I, I, I use uh, Apple Pages so you can, it saves all the drafts. Mm -hmm. I went back and sort of looked at it and, you know, very early on, it was very dry, had none of my sort of experience in it. I, I, I wasn't connecting it to me. Um, and then, so that's an example of, of the knowledge was not informing the poem yet. But then I thought, I forget why I came up with the line, but, it, you know, like I was thinking, you know, muons come from the almost, you know, very early on in the Big Bang. And so I came up with in the beginning, right? You know, it's sort of like this is in the beginning and sort of got the cadences of Genesis in my mind. Um, and I said in the beginning, I think when the universe was hot and that immediately sort of stirred this sense of what's hot, you know, like the desires of a teen for some reason that came to me. And I started thinking about my own desires and how they were um, in some respects, I had a similar experience to muons, you know, it's, it's like, and then the poem just cascaded um, with, with, um, but it took many 
false starts, starting with too much knowledge and ending up with the knowledge actually being really important to inform how the poem unfolded. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some pinatas are easier to break than others. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, let's, let's talk about your chapbook, book, um, a sword in both hands. This collection is beautiful and it's tragic. Um, okay. So it's, it, it talks about com- Ukraine. What led to the creation of this book besides, you know, the, the invasion itself. Um, so there, I'd say there are three, three things. Um, as you probably know, I have a practice of writing at least one poem responding to the news each week and submitting it to Rattle Poets Respond. Um, so I'm looking for news articles early in the week or news events or f- pictures or some sort of ekphrastic relationship between the news and, and a poem, sort of looking for things that might um, either either be compelling narratives for me or have metaphor suffused in just the headline of the story. And of course, many of us were obsessing about the war in Ukraine the week beforehand, and I wrote one that's sort of unfolded uh, what it might look like the night before a war breaks out. Um, and <clears throat> I I liked the poem. It's the second poem in the in in the book. Um, and that week, um, the poem that um, won the you know got won the poets respond was one written by Julia, um, uh, Mir in Ukraine. And she read it, and I just, I just cried as I listened to her voice reading it, and um, and just was so compelled by her connection through this poem. And the very uh, two days later, she held a uh, poetry reading. Uh, she organized um, a Zoom poetry reading with uh, Ukrainian poets. Ukrainian translators, Ukrainian poets in the U.S., Ukrainian poets in bomb shelters in Ukraine. And we are listening to people reading from underground into their phones with rumblings in the background and people like, um, and then their American translators uh, translating their poems and you talk about you know and you read about this all the time with poets no matter what they're doing they're they're connected to their poetry during the holocaust there were you know poets who wrote with charcoal on um you know scrap paper inside you know hiding inside chimneys because they had to write their poetry there are poets who you know who's um, you know, recited poetry as they were marching on death marches. You know, it, it's uh, and so here we had this modern day equivalent, but not quite to that extremis of poets attending a poetry reading while they're being bombed. And Ilya Kaminsky was on this call, Carolyn Forche, and a number of other poets. And I just thought if they can read their poems from bunkers. I can write a poem every week, yeah. right? I can yeah. keep keep this alive by writing a poem every week because surely it won't last forever. <laughs> uh, and so then um, I just started writing a poem responding to one of the events, uh, you know, something that was going on in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, that that that's sort of how it unfolded for me. The other piece is is that um, as a Ashkenazi Jew, there is zero doubt that at some point in the last thousand years, all sorts of members of my family were residents of what is now geographically Ukraine, um, because Ashkenazis were always on the move. You know, there the were pogroms and, you know, they were driven out of here, driven to there. And while we now identify with the country that our immediate ancestors emigrated from, 
those immediate ancestors, if they were from Lithuania, as my mother's family was, or from Germany, as my father's, um, they weren't always there. They had been driven there from someplace else. And so I, I am very confident that I have a familial connection to Jews in Ukraine. And um, one of the things that early on in the war, Odessa, which is sort of like a cultural touchstone for, uh, you know, contemporary um, uh, Eastern European, Central European Judaism uh, was under assault. And the thought of that being lost was, you know, made me feel even more of a connection. Have you thought about doing a 23andMe or, or you know, like a, a DNA, like a D, like a genealogical map mapping? Yeah. So the problem, because of this characteristic of Ashkenazi Jews, um, that we were always on the move, okay. is that's all you all you get back from 23andMe. Yeah. You get Ashkenazi Jew. Got it. It, it doesn't say German. It doesn't say Polish or Lithuanian or Russian or anything like that. So you get back one. Th that's I just have one genotype, and it's Ashkenazi <laughs> Jew, and 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 so would somebody you know, you know, my primary ancestry is is German, and somebody's primary ancestry is Russian Jewish. We come back the exact primary meaning, the ancestor who emigrated, right. Uh, um, <laughs> But all of us have the same gen genetic markers because of that constant w statelessness. Sure. So the, the the lab printout just has a guy shrugging on the <laughs> the bottom of the thing. No, it's definitive. It's definitive. <laughs> it's like this 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 is your quote nation. This is you know your your, um, uh, but it can't capture actual broader you know it captures a geography basically as large as half of the united states yeah yeah um you you know your your poetry you read at a, i saw one of your recent readings and you had um you, you shared photographs that went along with the poems and i wanted to know what your thoughts were on because the the russian invasion in ukraine is unique in the sense that it's a high-profile war at a time when cameras are ubiquitous. We have, you know, cameras on drones, cameras on satellites, people have cameras in their hands. They, like, they have them in their pockets while they're holding a gun. Like, so how, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what, what is it like to be an observer and to have access to so much information? How do you think it's changed warfare? Like, as someone who's spent a lot of time thinking about this, I'm really curious... So, so first I'll go back to, um, I go back to the Vietnam era. I was born during the war in Korea, but I go, my, you know, my consciousness goes back to the Vietnam era, which was referred to as the first living room war because there were news crews and every night on the news, we had visuals from the Vietnam war. We also had these magazines, Life and Look, which were photo uh, look especially was a um, photo essay weekly, um, and so we we were we were saturated. We thought, you know, we were saturated with images because there were war photographers uh, taking pictures, and there's some really iconic Vietnam War images that um, all, everybody of my generation knows, and you might you might know the picture of the naked little girl who's fleeing from a napalm bombing, right? It's like yeah. this iconic. Most people know the picture from Kent State protests of the woman on the ground with her arms up in the air. Like those images are still in your consciousness. I see you nodding your head. Yeah, I know. I I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. So so this is nothing new. But I would say you are correct that the, you know, the, the iPhone era has brought more images, like the image of the woman um, handing the soldier um, uh, sunflower seeds, right? That that's, that's something that can only be captured in this era. Mm -hmm. But there are others that are strictly photojournalism, such as the picture that Lindsay Odario took of the, um, of the, you know, the children with their, 
backpacks looking like they're coming home from school in their puffy coats and the other kid with the roller suitcase, that was taken by a photojournalist. The picture of um, um, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky when he arrived in Buka and saw the you know, the savaged bodies and the torture chambers and stuff. That picture of him was taken by a photojournalist, similar to the ones in Vietnam. And both of those poems, in some respects, are, are ekphrastics, right? Especially, especially the Zelensky one. That, that one was strictly an ekphrastic. It was like, I was less responding to the what he was seeing than him seeing it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, a frastic is just another way to get into a poem, right? It's just another thing that, that stirs the metaphor making and, and, and language, uh, stirs the connections in the poet's mind. But, um, the poem still has to unfold from that prompt. Sure. And and what strikes me about this collection is that it seems to me like it's a hybrid form. It's like it's partially ekphrastic as in, you know, you're using these new stories and images and videos to to get into that headspace and prompt the poems, but also it's it's kind of like a poetry of witness. It's a it's a poem it's partially journalistic and where's the line where's the line for like how far is too far or am i not doing this justice or am i being too vulgar because i would be i would be personally i'd be so intimidated to write something like this and your collection has such confidence <laughs> it, it at no point do i think that it's self-fulfillment in any way you're 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 i don't know so so i don't know could you does that make sense could you talk about that line yeah that's a really great question i mean it's a um because i've often talked about one of the impulses of being a poet is greed it's like you are you are greedy for these images and lines and and things that come from outside you um, you know, you're, you hear another poet's use of turn a phrase and like, like you have this sense of like, you know, coveting your neighbor's metaphor, right? Uh, and, I never metaphor I didn't like. <laughs> yeah. Um, and well, I've met, I've met quite a few that, that are forced, but, um, and of my own, you know, I'm not just judging others. It's like, oh my God, did I actually say that? Pardon me. Um, but I, it, it's, it's a good unanswerable question because to what, to what extent is this poetry of witness, um, appropriation? And I think um, the answer, I don't know what the answer is. I, I do know that people in the mix have appreciated the poems. And so that sort of, it doesn't absolve me, right, of, of that question you asked. But I th I think the going back to one of your early questions is that <clears throat> the poems that were started with me not knowing what I thought about. I mean, for instance, the poem I'm going to read at the end is the kind of silence heard when musicians are murdered. And I know I knew that I thought, what a what a what a courageous man this conductor was to refuse to conduct a a symphony for um, the occupiers, knowing how brutal they were. Mm -hmm. um, but the greedy part of me was also saying, "There's a metaphor here, right? <laughs> there's some, there's something going on with this destruction of the musician because he wouldn't play music." Um, so. The only way to sort of get around that is 
to allow the poem to transform your greed into something else. And one of the reasons why I picked this poem today, which I'll, I'll read at the end, was um, I had a poet friend of mine write me and he said, that poem is a love poem. And then I reread it and he, he had quoted some lines from it. He said that this is just, this is just a poem of love. Um, and um, so, you know, having the commitment to write something that transforms me and the reader. Um, I mean, and, you know, I, I don't have to, I, I will cite the frost line, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader, which is, you know, repeated often enough to appear a little hackneyed, but but it's true. If, if that came out as a love poem to this person, because I, the practice, and I like, uh, Tim Green calls it, a, you know, a, a spiritual practice, not meaning a religious practice, but the, the practice of entering a poem is, is this sort of practice, spiritual practice of opening yourself up to what what's going to happen in the poem. So I think knowing that I'm going to do that makes me feel a little better about the appropriation issue. Okay. A, a great answer. Like I, I, that was, there was a lot in there. I'm not going to go on why on the here, but I, there's some things in there I needed to hear. <laughs> it's excellent. Um, and how badass is that woman with the sunflower seeds? She walks up to Russian soldiers. She's like, yeah, I don't know how old she was, but she was elderly. And she hands it to him and says, at least some good will come of your dead bodies when sunflowers grow. You know, I, I don't know the exact quote, but man, that was hardcore. <laughs> well, and and a lot of those stories coming out of, you know, we, we have to remember this is war. Mm. Zelensky for all of his strengths, is a communicator, right? He's an actor. He's a media specialist. And I am confident that early on in the war, these stories that were coming out were, were curated to an extent for Western ears. So uh, I, I don't see this as nefariousness, but, you know, that, that, there were all these stories coming out in the first couple months that were just pitched to develop a sense of empathy among other other folks in the West, um, and that that story was one of them. I'm sure it's true, but like any true story, who knows what the exact facts were? Yeah, that's interesting. That, that I kind of I'm now seeing like, okay, so we have these 100 reports from villages, which ones do we want? You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't know exactly how the, how the media was, was sort of curated, but um, you know, let's, let's use propaganda as a positive thing for a moment and say, if propaganda that makes stuff up is bad propaganda, propaganda that's a little selective to help your effort <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, this this story, yeah, this story was a great story, and it's and it's turned out this is the character of the Ukrainian people. They are, by and large, you know, of course, it's a you know, it's a um, heterogeneous society, um, but they are by, by and large have a spirit that nobody could have imagined until the war started unfolding and, and she's sort of, a, she's an icon of that. I didn't write a poem about this, but the, uh, um, the um, soldiers on snake Island, you know, Russian, Russian Navy, go fuck yourself. Uh, you might have to believe that. I don't know what the, uh, but you know, those folks became on postage stamps in, in, uh, in Ukraine and were held up as, as heroes, but those kinds of stories weren't false they actually were exemplifying you know who the ukrainian people were as a broad broad strokes um but those aren't the only stories that are going on you know one of the poems um um in the book um that talks about let's see the um the hungry skies hungry times and uncertain skies 
talks about the fact that they're collaborators in some of these occupied cities. There were some neighbors who actually had more food than other neighbors, right? And why was that? So, you know, I don't want to, I I didn't want the book to sugarcoat and sort of like extend the propaganda to being like, you know, all the Ukrainians are, you know, angels, um, nor all of us in the West, which is why the title poem is A Sword in Both Hands, which brings to the point that our view of Ukrainian uh, refugees is proper and appropriate empathy, support, welcoming. Mm. But that's not how all refugees are treated. Yeah. It, se- it seems to be um, white European refugees uh. are, are treated that way in Europe. Um, and just wanted to make sure that we don't, you know, completely, uh, you know, this isn't a, a what's it called? A hagiography, I think is the word. Um, it's, it's mixed. Yeah. And what I like about the title also is that, you know, these, these, these Russians that are, that are getting slaughtered, they're kids. And, and a lot of them, the early reporting said that the Russians thought they were going to a training exercise. They didn't expect an invasion until like, 12 hours before and they had no idea what was about to happen and some of them were invading villages that their family members lived in and you know the kremlin and and the russian leadership for all its terrifying genocidal faults um they're sending their own kids to slaughter and it's it's hard because you you know Ukraine's the underdogs. They got invaded, and and so the the the, the response I, I immediately had was like, "Man, you gotta you gotta kick them out," and you, and they do, and they they should be able to reclaim their their nation. But you know, like a lot of wars, it's it's poor people who don't deserve to die dying. Well, and the other point of the title poem is our attention is appropriately on ukraine right yeah but it is not on yemen where there's a war that is destroying families it's not on um you know other 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 places where um there is war going on among parties and children are being sent to war by powerful people um this one has attracted our attention it's not wrong that it's attracted our attention, but it should raise um, uh, flags that it is specifically a European war that's attracted our attention and and wars over oil in oil areas or religious wars that we've stirred up are not high on our radar right now. I, I mentioned uh, Myanmar, the, the, the junta taking over in their coup two years ago, and I mentioned it to my students and I and I got some puzzled looks and I said who knows about this and only one student raised their hand out of a class of like 24. Wow I just heard a poem on um, poem talk called um, Welter and it was a, a poet juxtaposing the um, documenting from a like a sort of like this critical distance of the massacre of Rohingya in Myanmar and a welterweight boxing match in Las Vegas and look up the poem welter and okay. read it to you, read it with your kids and and help them you know help them work through that poem listen uh, yeah it's on poem talk i think okay i, I absolutely will yeah um it, for my last question, what do you want people to take away from this collection and from your writing in general? Well, let's start with the collection. Um, so I'm working right now with a group of um, uh, local Ukrainian diaspora uh, folks in the, around the greater Cincinnati area. There's a sister cities project. There, there, there are three or four organizations. I'm working through one person. We're going to do a joint event. And I asked 
like the leader of this sort of movement is like, we're on me. Like, you know, can we meet tomorrow? Can we meet, to, you know, like I'm wanting to sell books, right? I want another audience for my, I'm being, a, you know, a little facetious. But for him, keeping awareness of the humanity of the people in Ukraine is top of his list. And so for him, this book serves his purposes as a utility. It It's another way. He's got news reports. He's got prayer vigils. He's got these things, but he doesn't have a literary connection. And he just wants to keep pounding all the keys that keep the uh, awareness of the humanity of the people in the region. And so um, uh, proud's not the right word, but I'm pleased that he sees me as somebody useful to his work. So that, that's, that's I think, what um, I want folks to get out of the collection is a connection that only poetry, poetry can do differently than other forms of media. Um, and, you know, it's, I've heard poetry described as an empathy engine. I'm not sure if that's always, I don't like the engine and poetry in the same sentence, but it is, it is something, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, I'm just reading Rachel Custer's new collection, um, uh, Flatback Sally Country. And it's like, it's a similar thing is like all like poems can create a sense of empathy that a news report can't. So I'm hoping that they do that as opposed to out of, uh, out of my poetry. I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I will say, I will say that different poems have done different things. You mentioned um, uh, the uh, poem, the miracle of naming. And I got correspondence from all over the country of parents of LGBTQ kids going, oh, like that feels like what I should be feeling. And it just helps me feel that. Uh, the poem that I wrote about the um, uh, the nearly new moon and the crescent earth is I got correspondence from people saying, you know, it's been, you know, I've sometimes I'm bitter about my kids being so far away, but yeah, this let me, let me breathe. Um, and the uh, poem, um, uh, an American Jew fails to make sense of the carnage in Gaza elicited a different kind of response. It wasn't empathy so much as it was, you know, like conversation about, about possibilities so different poems stir different things. Uh, recent poem uh, that I posted on Facebook about uh, called Running Companion uh, prompted a lot of folks to say, you poets, because it's a, it's a, it's sort of a um, um, ars poetica about where poetic lines come from. Um, it just got, you know, poets sort of excited about their next poem mm. Um so different things for di different poems and none of them with sort of the intention of making that happen. Sure. Sure. You're a very organic poet and I, <laughs> I respect the hell out of that. Um, could you please wrap us up with a poem? Sure. Um, this is actually the, uh, one of the things I've done with my chat book is I have people, I ask people to write me and say, what's a poem that stirred you? Um and very often I find they're not the, my favorite poems, which I think is a wonderful exercise for poets to understand that what they are connected to, um, that once you put your collection of your poems out there, if they're subject to other folks, um, um, uh, you know, to other folks' interests. So this poem, nobody else has picked until this other poet wrote me and said it was a love poem. So that's why I'm reading it because it's the most recent one that somebody said they they liked. Um, and it's uh, for Yuri Kapenko, who was murdered by Russian authorities for refusing to conduct a concert in occupied Kherson. It's called The Kind of Silence Heard When Musicians Are Murdered. What if the whole idea is wrong? What if music played at the point of a gun 
could resurrect the dead? What if there really are 10 dimensions of space and time? What if one of those dimensions were notes on a symphony score that one by one disappeared, but only when perfectly played? A cantata could become silence the more it is performed. The conductor's baton sweeping arcs, outlining the shape of empty space so the music can rise into it like a swarm of bees, like a murmuration of note-shaped starlings. And what if the violinists bowed on infinite strings, thumbed, thrummed light into the light night sky, while at the same time the kettle drum's mallet strike the stretched skin of the one creature not named by Adam? And what if the conductor himself, bound at the wrists by a burning rope, is dragged off by the authorities for playing so perfectly, so perfectly that the disbelievers, the tyrants, the martial marchers all strut to the rhythm of their own oblivion? And what if the strutters can never know the kind of quiet that depends on autumn leaves falling, the quiet that breaks hearts, the quiet that is more dangerous than nothing, the silence that's heard by every one of us who sat quiet among friends, mourned the ones murdered for beauty, who we'd welcome to fill their bellies with fire, then sing courage hymns to the poets and painters, hope to the storytellers, even as one of their own lies sprawled on the floor at his home in a surprising pool of blood. Mm. Wonderful. Okay. That, thank you for sharing that. Um, Okay, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Dick, can't thank you enough. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Oh, Jeremy, I really appreciate it. Appreciate the conversation. Mm-hmm.